Hello and welcome to Stuff Said, the show where I, Greg Schiegel, a cartoonist, talk to people in the worlds of comics, cartooning, and beyond. That's typically what happens. I am sitting one-on-one with somebody and we talk about what they do and what we do as cartoonists, etc., etc. Sometimes there's a group of us on occasion. And once a year, I get on the mic by myself in a solo show, a Stuff Said solo, which is what's happening on this very episode. This episode marks four years, the four-year anniversary of Stuff Said. Episode 1 with Chris Giruso launched on the 4th of July in 2011. And every 4th of July since, I've done one of these solo shows where I talk a little bit about the show and tell a story of some kind. But before I do either of those things, I want to put the business of plugs and such up front this time. Normally, I do this at the end of the show. I'm going to do it up at the front of the show. So... The website for this show is StuffSaidShow.com. That's where I put up extensive show notes for pretty much every episode. Links and artwork and videos, stuff like that. Check that out. That's also where you can leave comments on an episode or email me through the site. Or you can email directly at StuffSaid at gmail.com. Social media-wise, I'm at Greg Schiegel, G-R-E-G-G-S-C-H-I-G-I-E-L, on Twitter, Twitter. Uh, so that's that's how you can reach me. I also have a book. I self-published a book called Picks One Weirdest Weekend, which you can buy signed copies or digital copies at pixcomic.com slash store or through your local comic shop or on amazon.com or you can ask your library to order it. That would be awesome so that people can check it out. Uh, also at pixcomic.com, you can read the first chapter of the book for free. If you go there, pixcomic.com, you can read the first chapter Enjoy that, and then, yeah, take it from there. Stuff Said is available on iTunes, which is how you might be listening to it right now, and I'm always happy if you take the time to rate the show five stars and write a review. If you don't know what to write, write the word for, and you can spell that however you want, because that word is a homonym. Uh, Stuff Said is also part of the Acme Wave Projector Network at acmewaveprojector.com, home of other podcast programs like AcmeCast, uh, one of which, one episode of which I was just on. I was just on AcmeCast. If you want to hear more of me talking about comics. And speaking of more of me, I have another podcast, Cruising Together, where the aforementioned first guest of this show, Chris Jeruso, and I chronologically are watching the films of Tom Cruise. And we are inviting friends, episode by episode, to kind of but not really discuss those movies. It's a fun and funny show. And maybe the silliest, dumbest thing I've ever done as a professional person. So I encourage you to go listen to Cruising Together. Again, on iTunes or at hatterentertainment.com slash cruising. So yeah, so there's all that uh, on the plug side. So like I'd said, I've done solo shows as part of the the recognition of anniversaries. In year one, I did talk about John Buscema, who is no longer with us, so we couldn't interview him. In year two, I talked about how I broke into comics, or into Marvel comics, comics in general. In year three, I went back to talking about somebody who was no longer with us. I did a, I told stories about Mike Moringo, and it seems that, you know, patterns being what they are, it makes sense that in the second year I talked about breaking in. In this fourth year, I would talk about why I left my job at Marvel Comics as an assistant editor, and, I don't know, it's like a nice bookend, Right? Why I broke, how I broke in, why I walked away. So, 
let's do that, and then I'll say some other stuff uh, after that. So here's my here's a story. Here's the story of how and why I left my job at Marvel Comics in the year at the end of yeah, in January of two thousand. Hello, I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. When I accepted my job at Marvel Comics in October of 1997, that's a long time ago at this point, I went in knowing that I would not be there forever. I knew knew going in that this was not going to be what I was doing for the rest of my life. In fact, uh, one of my fellow assistant editors at the time, who was concerned that by my taking the assistant editor job, I would not, I would end up never drawing comics, pretty much made me promise that if I did not draw a comic in the first six months I was working there, I would quit that job. Uh, As it happens, I did draw a comic. Uh, What if number 113 in that window? Uh, So I never had to see through that promise, but it also turns out that that fellow assistant editor had left before that six months was up anyway. So uh, it didn't matter. Because part of the deal was he had to stay. Maybe it was a year. It might have been a year, not six months. Either way, it happened and he had already quit. Regardless, while I did not know the my last day of working at Marvel Editorial at the time, I knew there would be an eventual end date. I think in my mind it had, it'd be a thing of, oh, I would do small jobs while I was working there, and then I'd build to regular freelance work, or at the very least save enough money so that I could leave the day job and pursue the freelance thing, which that second option is the height of foolishness considering how little we as assistant editors got paid. In fact, in, in preparation for this, I looked it up to see what the average income was in 1998. And my my income as an assistant editor was about $10,000 less than the median income in 1998, according to the U.S. Census. So... If you want to go look that up and see and, and subtract over 10 grand from that number, you'll know what we were getting paid. I don't want to be uncouth and start talking about specific numbers. But anyway, it was clear to me that editorial work wasn't necessarily my quote-unquote calling uh, through a few instances. But one I remember specifically was, so I worked for Tom Brevoort. I was his assistant editor on awesome books like Avengers and Thor and Avengers Forever, and Thunderbolts, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but at one point we inherited the Hulk. The editor who was working in the Hulk had left, and we were given the book, and in time we needed to find a new writer. Uh, I can't remember if it was overnight or over a weekend, but I had pondered, I'd pondered the Hulk, which is something you do when you work in comics, and I remember coming in... Uh, Either again, either the next day or after that weekend, with a whole bunch of thoughts, whole very excited about some ideas I had about the Hulk, uh, an approach, a concept I'd come up with as far as how to approach the Hulk that'd be interesting and new and as yet unseen. And I went through the whole thing with Tom and I explained to him how to play off the Hulk and Bruce Banner dynamic that we'd known, but tweak it just enough. And Tom was awesome and he listened to me and nodded. And when I was all done, he said, you know, without shutting me down in any way. He pretty much said, uh, that's great, all sounds very cool, but our job in editorial is not to write the books. 
We are our job is to find the people who we think might do the best job with the book. Uh, we can make suggestions, certainly, but in the end, we weren't writing these things. It was we were editorial, and he was right. I still agree with him. But I know that in that moment, it reminded me that that's where I was and how that related to where I wanted to go. Um, and again, I wanted to make comics. I wanted to write and draw comics. Uh, at the time, Marvel was a particularly interesting place to work. Uh, company was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy pretty much the entire time I was working there. A far, far cry from where Marvel Comics is now in the year 2015. Uh, the president of the company changed fairly regularly in my two and a half years there. I think there were four presidents while I was there. Um, sales kept slipping to new lows at the time. Although if you compare the numbers, it's interesting. Those those years to now, um, the description I used to use at the time was it felt like we were you know, the, the staff at Marvel, editorial production, manufacturing, etc. Like we were the band on the Titanic. So we were all playing our little hearts out as the ship around us was uh, going down. <laughs> Again, it's weird to think of it now, given what Marvel Comics currently is, but at the time, these were genuine... I mean, people were people were leaving pretty regularly. Um, you know, as, as... It was an atmosphere that had ups and downs. So on the upside, there was a sense of camaraderie. We were all in it together. On the downside, people were getting lit off. People were leaving for other jobs. It was really, I mean, an interesting place to be for sure. And as a result, there was a limit to how much opportunity there was for trying new things or, or pushing past what was known to work. So for instance, I can remember a meeting where a group of editors were discussing the possibility of doing a new version of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which anybody that was reading comics in the 80s will remember as this awesome 12-issue run where it cataloged every superhero, every villain, every headquarters, whatever, in the Marvel Universe, like an encyclopedia. And we were talking about doing one of those, and a real genuine concern, a true risk, was what if this book gets canceled by issue 8? What if a volu- What if a book that's supposed to have 24 issues, a finite series, is going to get canceled by 8 because that's just where the markers were on sales? I mean, consider that this was a time where a comic book like Deadpool... So Deadpool is now very popular. There's going to be a movie made starring the character Deadpool. Uh, this was a book that was always under the threat of being canceled. Uh, I mean, f- without getting too specifically into into everything... In 1998, the book was... I looked it up because I, you know, I'm a mental case. But in 1998, the book was selling in the high 30,000s, low 40,000s. While now, Deadpool, at maybe not its most popular, but certainly he's a very popular character, is selling in the mid 40,000s. So, that's the difference. Like, it was almost selling the same, but back then it was in threat of cancellation. Now it's a successful, I don't know, I don't even know if that point makes any point, but suffice to say, the company was not taking chances. Uh, but, and, and that only means anything in terms of, you know, my style is maybe a bit cartoonier, uh, my sensibility might be a little different. In the end, what it means is the editorial job was steady. 
I also, I remember, I mean, I remember talking to an inker who wanted to, to switch over into doing penciling work. And I was saying, yeah, I don't know if that's the smartest move. It's not a lot of work out there. Uh, so yeah, opportunities were slim. If you're, you know, if I'm being quite honest, it was a, it was a real contracting period in the comics world, which is not to say I did not like the job. I loved that job. Anyone who's listened to the show for the past four years has heard me talk about how much I enjoyed my time there. And I reflect on it with great fondness. I uh, felt like it was graduate school in a lot of ways where I learned so much that I can't even get into how much I learned from the people, from the freelancers, from everybody. And I was drawing. I was getting penciling work from a department of Marvel called Creative Services. So I was doing things like drawing artwork for the X-Men Monopoly game or doing Spider-Man artwork for the Dorling Kindersley Ultimate Spider-Man Guide, Spider-Man Ultimate Guide. Uh, stuff like that, which, quite frankly, did wonders for my low income in terms of freelance work. And, you know, I got to draw comics. You know, that's how I got the gig drawing the somewhat infamous anti-drug Spider-Man story, Fast Lane, that some people still talk about to this day. Anyway, that was the circumstances. That None of that has to do with why I left, but those were the circumstances of the job at the time. Uh, given all that, there is an actual story as to what made me leave, and it kind of plays out in three, three beats, I suppose. Beat one plays almost completely counter to everything I've been saying about taking chances, which is, as a goof, I guess goof is maybe dismissal of d- dismissive of it, but for for, I used to go around office to office and pitch a bunch of silly crap. And one of the things I pitched was to the editor, Mark Powers, because we were all... The movie Swingers was still pretty popular at the time, and I had pitched a concept for a one-shot that would sort of riff off of the concept of Swingers that would feature Star Fox and Thanos going out on the town with Star Fox and the ladies' men of the Marvel Universe teaching Thanos how to how to talk to women because Thanos wanted to woo death and was not having much luck with it, you know, killing a bunch of people. The whole thing was a joke, but it was a funny idea, and Mark was on board, and he said, if you fill out the paperwork, I will sign it, and we will we'll see if we can get this project going. And by, uh, I don't know... Uh, what stroke this pitch of me writing and drawing a one-shot humor comic was approved. Uh, not under great circumstances. The person who told me it was approved pretty much said, quote-unquote, despite my objection, your project got approved. So, so there's that. But the point is, I was on my way to writing and drawing a one-shot comic book for Marvel Comics. It was very exciting. And if you want the full story of how Star Fox's Swingin' Spring Break Super Special eventually never came to be, uh, go to the show notes and there will be a link to a telling of, of that whole story. So that's, that's phase one of this three-part explanation as to what got me to, to leave Marvel's editorial department. Part two came on a day... Again, this is now 1999. 
for anybody keeping track. I started working in October of 97. There were major layoffs in 1998. And then in December of 99, I think it was December, might have been November, uh, Tom Brevoort and I shared an office. We sat uh, our desks against the wall, so we faced our, our backs faced each other. Uh, he was on the phone with somebody. He leaned back and said, hey, Greg, any interest in doing some freelance art for Nickelodeon? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Sure. Uh, turns out Tom was on the phone with a friend of his who worked at a department at Nickelodeon called Nickelodeon Creative Resources. And Nickelodeon Creative Resources was a part of the licensing department at Nickelodeon. So NCR, Nickelodeon Creative Resources, was responsible for creating style guide art. The stuff that ends up on stationery and packaging and t-shirts. They approve 3D sculpts for toys or bubble bath bottles or amusement park rides. Things like that. And they were looking for people to draw character art for that exact purpose. So I spoke to this guy about what exactly was involved. And he explained that I needed to take a test. And the test pretty much meant I had to draw two poses of a couple of Nickelodeon characters. So he sent over reference and turnarounds for two properties. One of them was a show that was on TV called Cat Dog, and the other was something that I had never heard of called SpongeBob SquarePants. Again, folks, this is 1999. I had to draw two poses of each character and I, and then send those back. So uh, they would then, based on my drawings, they would determine whether I was, you know, whether I tested properly to get freelance work drawing these characters. Seemed simple enough. I was ready for it. What I did not expect to come of this was the offer of a full-time job uh they i did the test i sent them in and i got a call back saying hey we like these samples we want to hire you to work here full-time i did not expect that offer to pay nearly double what i was making at marvel for a job that i'd basically be me drawing all day as i understood it so it was certainly something i would need to consider I'd be foolish not to consider such an offer. So, you know, I was thinking about it and, you know, going back and forth. Here I was offered a full-time job drawing, a project that I had pitched to write and draw had been approved. And I think at that point I was doing cover sketches and laying things out and writing up a plot. I mean, all the stuff that I wanted to be doing was starting to happen and it was kind of awesome but at the same time I did have a steady job and I really liked working with Tom but I also knew it wasn't the long-term goal etc etc which all kind of dovetails into phase three of this story. I was wrestling with the decision trying to figure out what to do. I, I'm fairly certain this happened on a Friday because I then had the weekend to think about it but all of editorial were called into the editor-in-chief's office for a meeting. Editor-in-chief at the time was Bob Harris, and every editor and assistant editor filed into his office, and we stood around or sat on the floor. I know I was sitting on the floor, because there was a lot of us, and it's only so big an office. And this meeting was to talk to us in editorial about the content of our books and how that affected the sales of those books. Specifically, uh, leading this meeting... Or, or rather, you know, the reins were handed off to a VP of sales who proceeded to explain to us that they were trying to get the books into Toys R Us, into retail outlets like Toys R Us. And 
that the content of the books was very important because they'd shown books to the people at Toys R Us and they had questionable content. Uh, he pointed out specifically an issue of Captain America they showed Toys R Us, which featured the hate monger, a villain who, if memory serves, has the brain of Hitler or somehow Hitler connected. And the issue has, you know, swastikas and all kinds of stuff in it because it's the hate monger. Uh, and he pointed to another comic book, an issue of the Spider-Woman title at the time, where the underage Spider-Woman is going after Peter Parker romantically and trying to kiss on him. And I think they're actually she actually plants one on him. I can't remember. I didn't read that comic. But Peter Parker at the time was an adult and was married. So it was like, hey, what, you know, this is questionable content. And he said this wasn't good because if they're going to sell these books in places like Toys R Us or Walmart or bookstores or what have you, uh, we as editorial had to be careful about what was in the books. And that might be 100% correct. I'm not disputing that if you want to sell a book or a product to a mass market, you need to be mindful of what is going out there. But at the same time, you know, we were following the comics code. We were doing things by the rules. Uh, and certainly, the comics we were doing were being produced months in advance. Nothing was being snuck past anybody. Uh, in fact, I know, even though I wasn't working on Captain America, that any book with swastikas or any kind of uh, symbology like that, is that the right word, symbology, uh, needed to be uh, run by people for extra approval. I know that Tom and I worked on a collection of Golden Age Captain America stories and had the cover to Captain America Comics number one recreated and I had to get express permission to recreate the swastikas on that cover. And I got that permission only for when the book was getting wrapped up, those swastikas were removed and uh, the cover is printed without them. If you go look for uh, Captain America, the Golden Years, I think was the name of the trade. I'll have to look that up. But uh, there's just some red dots in the background where if you look at the original Captain America comics cover, there are, you know, swastikas because they were Nazis. Anyway, that that was the nat that that's what happened there. So, yes, while it's entirely possible that that idea was correct to be mindful of the content of the books, uh, the fact is we were doing things we were doing everything within the rules of our job as editorial. So sitting in this room being told that we had to mind the content of the books and about the questionable books that he'd mentioned, I I was compelled to raise my hand and ask uh, the question that was on my mind as I as I heard all this talk which was who made the decision to show those books that they showed to Toys R Us and did the person who made those decisions actually look at the books they were showing? I thought that was a fair question. Uh, and the answer, the sales VP straight up said that he was the one that made that decision and he had not looked at the content of the books before he showed them. Uh, explained that he assumed that Captain America and Spider-Woman were safer titles to show than, say, Thunderbolt or Deadpool. And at that point, two things happened. One... Uh, my boss, Tom Brevoort, in the back of the room, who was the editor of Thunderbolt, he said aloud something along the lines of, 
You assumed wrong, which got a good laugh. I thought it was awesome. Uh, and two, uh, in my mind, I, I sort of came to the conclusion, yeah, I got to, I think I need to leave. I think I need to go and take this Nickelodeon job because this doesn't make any sense. Like we're sitting here making these comics. We're doing, we're doing our jobs. And I don't know, there was a, a point of frustration that the people selling the books weren't looking at the books uh, to see what they were selling, how they could sell them, etc. For what it's worth, I'm pretty sure all those people are no longer at Marvel Comics. So, I, uh, you know, that was a long time. That was, that was 1999. That was December. No, might have been January by that point. But either way, that's 15 years ago. Uh, but yeah, after that, I determined that uh, given my personal circumstances, the job offer, the one shot, the creative services work I was getting, it, st- it stood to reason that I might actually be able to pursue these other avenues successfully. I also knew that uh, a good replacement for me, a former intern, was graduating soon, so I'd come up with a plan on how to hold the tide until he was available to take the job. I kind of, it all made sense. The timing seemed right. So the following Monday, I, I talked to Tom and I gave him my notice and thus began my last two weeks at Marvel. And talk about timing. That was right about the time that Marvel was coming out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy the Spider-Man and X-Men movies were finally announced and underway. Uh, and within the following year, Bill Jamis came on board. Joe Casado was editor-in-chief. The Ultimate Universe started. Uh, people started getting stock options. Fascinating timing, right? But it was the right timing for me to to step away. You know, there's that Seinfeld episode where Jerry explains to George that you got to go out on a high going on a laugh so there's no way to to come down and i certainly like to think i left on a high note in in everybody's good graces i think i did i know for me personally in my last week i achieved something i tried to to do for the entire time i was at marvel which was hiring mike mignola who hadn't done work for marvel in many years to do a thor cover and that was awesome made me feel pretty good feel fairly accomplished so yeah, that's the story. That's that's the series of events that led me to to walk away from my time at Marvel Comics. Uh, I did a couple of freelance things here and there after that, and then in 2009, pitched and wrote an X Babies miniseries. But really, since that time, I've been doing a whole other a whole other track of stuff, for better or worse. But it it led it led to this point and this podcast. So. You can make of that what you will, or something. And speaking of knowing when to walk away and and close something out, uh, that's the end of that story. All right, that's it for me. And there's that. And at this point, I will admit to having a double motive, hidden agenda, ulterior motive, I think is what I'm looking for, 
in telling that story. It was not just because it was a nice bookend to my second anniversary show talking about breaking into comics. The the double motive. I like the sound of double motive. I'm sure that's not right. But the the secondary reason is I'm doubling down to let all of you know that as of this episode, uh, I am taking a hiatus. An indefinite hiatus from Stuff Said. But a hiatus because I have the intention of getting back to it. Uh, for now, however... Given what I want to do, need to do, and have the actual capacity to do, uh, something had to give, and in this moment, that thing is this show, Stuff Said. I am uh, crazy proud of this show and what I've done with it. When I initially started four years ago, I set out to produce a show that was unlike any comics-related show I'd heard. Uh, I wanted to hear comics people talking the way I've heard folks talking when they're interviewed by Jesse Thorne on his shows The Sound of Young America and now Bullseye or the kinds of lengthy real conversations like Mark Marin has on his show WTF with other comedians that peer-to-peer this is what we do let's talk about it kind of thing and I'd like to think that over the past four years I, I've done that uh, I'm immensely satisfied with having done that I did the math I had 42 guests over the past four years. I did, well, this would be the fourth solo show, five group shows, uh, presented three convention panels, and then uh, and then there's those two made-up people. Well, not really made-up. One of them was made-up, and the other one is just a, a total bamboozlement. But I'm happy with with what I've done, and I... I put the show on hiatus with a bit of, uh, I'm happy to do it because the show is a, a bear, but I, I don't like having to do it because I really do like doing this. But like I said, it's it's a bear and I've it's been a ton of work. Uh, the amount of time that goes into these shows is absurd. Uh, by, by an example, the recent Robert Kirkman episode, in the lead up to that show, Despite knowing what I wanted to talk about, like I knew the major points I wanted to talk about, I still uh, went about reading a bunch of Battle Pope because I'd never read it and I wanted to know what his early work was like. I read and listened to all kinds of interviews to see what he's been asked a million times, so I knew not to ask it. I watched and rewatched his manifesto video. I watched the Kirkman Bendis debate YouTube clip, I think twice, maybe. I took notes. I confirmed those notes. I went over them again. And then there was the actual recording, which was over two and a half hours of chat. And then come came the editing, where I cut out ums and uhs and likes and other verbal shenanigans that we all have. And I, and I do that. I've done that for every show. And that takes at least three times, if not four times, as long as the recording itself. So a two-hour episode figure took six hours to edit. At the, at the minimum and then there's adjustments in sound levels and I, I go in and I add that music and record my intros and my outros and in the end it ends up being like a week's worth of work if not more for a, one episode of the show and then with that Kirkman episode I went ahead and tripled down and decided hey let's let's do a, an April Fool's episode and record an entirely new hour of made up stuff that we'll have to write 
and and record and edit and produce. So, look, I think both of those episodes are great, and I think they were both worth doing. But it comes to a bigger issue, which is why is the show doing what I want it and need it to do beyond a way for me to just talk to folks and make a thing? I feel like I can talk to folks. I mean, that's one thing. And then making the show is another thing. But I will be straight with you. Aside from a big episode here or there, and, and you'd be surprised who the big episodes are. And I'm not about to name them. But I'm saying there are shows that have gotten a lot of listeners and it's awesome. But the listenership hasn't grown by leaps and bounds over the past four years. Uh, and while... Uh, let me rephrase that. The listenership has not grown in the way I would have liked it to grow. I am appreciative of everybody who listens to this show, every one of you that has subscribed to the show. I can't thank you enough. Uh, some of you have been even more generous and donated to support the show, which is, I mean, holy moly, that's that's even the greatest. Uh, unfortunately, it's been few and far between, and not to dismiss those of you that did, because again, I super appreciate it, but it has not been nearly... Like, not enough to even, say, cover the cost of the equipment, for example, that I use to do this show. And I don't know that doing the show has directly led to folks buying my book when it came out at the end of last year. At least I didn't see that reflected in orders through the website, which is fair. Nobody has to buy anything. I understand that. And, but I, I, part of me thought, like, okay, as I build an audience for this show which is and has always been 100% free to download and listen to, perhaps that will translate into people being interested in the work I'm doing. And maybe it has, and I just haven't seen it, but that's all factoring into this decision to, to put the, the show on the shelf for the time being because it's, been, it's maximum effort for less than ideal results beyond the show itself. Uh, has me thinking that I need to as discussed in that Robert Kirkman episode, pivot. I love talking to other cartoonists and comics people about what we do, but I think I need to do it differently. And I need to figure out what that means. And in the meantime, I want to make more comics. And with Stuff Said and my other show Cruising Together and working on SpongeBob comics and trying to have an actual life, uh, I'm overbooked. And I'm not making more comics. So... In the end, Stuff Said is getting benched indefinitely for now. When it comes back, which is the plan, it will be different. I'm not sure how. Uh, probably less editing on my part. Maybe more shows like this where I just talk about something by myself. You know, that's still, that would still be stuff being said, certainly. You know, uh, maybe less production in terms of adding music and that sort of thing. Maybe more... Maybe I'd do more group shows. I enjoy doing those, but with different groups of people. Uh, maybe I won't hew to a specific schedule. and Maybe it won't be out every 15th or the 15th of every month. Or it'll come out when there's a show, when I have something to share. I'll probably get over my have-to-record-every-interview-in-person rule and use video chat or phone recording to, uh, to talk to folks. I don't know yet. I'm figuring it out. But I do know there are still people I would love to talk to and say stuff with. If anyone knows Louise Simonson, I'd love to talk to her for an hour, for sure. 
Jules Pfeiffer, Kyle Baker. But yeah, I've got a list of people I'd love to talk to. Love it. So I'm taking a break, but it's always in the back of my mind. Believe you me, the way my brain works, I'm constantly thinking of who I could talk to, what the conversation might be like, things I'd want to ask. And I'm sure I will, I will miss this uh, more than I think I will uh, while I'm taking this indefinite break. So that said, I ask you to not unsubscribe. If you've subscribed in iTunes, uh, leave your subscription alive. I, I do intend to, to do something. If, if at the very least, if it comes to the point where I go, you know what? I've taken the break and I don't miss it and I don't want to do it anymore. I will do one more episode where I explain that. But for the time being, the plan is to, to pop in from time to time. And besides that, if you, if you do want a monthly dose, I encourage you strongly to sign up for my monthly newsletter. I send out a newsletter on the first of the month to people subscribed to my email list, which provides updates on things I have going on. Uh, so if there is an episode coming up and I'm, and I'm planning for it, it'll show up there first. That's where, that's where you'll get your first word of anything new. Uh, and you can sign up for that at the website, stuffsaidshow.com. You'll, you'll see it along the right side of the page. If you are someone who has donated, and I thank you again, and you are upset and you want your money back, email me. We will work that out. Uh, otherwise, as always, the theme music for Stuff Said was written and performed by Craig Chin, who is at rudeanagrams.com, and I thank him for it. For more about me, aside from that newsletter that I mentioned earlier, and Cruising Together and my book picks, one weirdest weekend. Keep your eye on HatterEntertainment.com. H-A-T-T-E-R Entertainment.com. That's my, that's my web hub. That's, that's where everything will come from. That's about all the stuff I have left to say for now. See you next time. La, 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 la.